listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. We're going to look to God's Word here today, too, as we begin this um, short sermon series. We're going to pick it up here at Christmas, and then we're going to also pick this up at Easter. And here is our King, and, and we're going to be looking at the Word of God. Turn in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles. We're going to start at the beginning there, and we're going to look at this, this passage. And, and um, as you're looking there, as you're getting your Bible opened up or finding it on your Bible app, um, I, I'd love for you to just kind of consider this question in the back of your head. Christmas is, if you were to be asked that question, Christmas is dot, dot, dot. I'm sure there's a lot of different answers and initial responses that would come to mind. Maybe it's family, friends, food, fun, fellowship, fattening time. You know, a lot of F's there, you know, to describe Christmas perhaps. Um, it's a time, you know, when, when people get together and, and they set aside their differences. Um, it's a very charitable time. I'm kind of overwhelmed and amazed at all of the different charities and all the the different opportunities for hampers and for presents and, 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 and seeing that no one goes without this Christmas season. I think it's a great thing to see this, but it's also a great idea to see that happening throughout the rest of the year as well. And um, I'm, I'm trusting the Lord and, and hopefully we can share some news with you soon even in how we want to be able to help out with some of that on uh, just a, a, in an after Christmas kind of a way. Just not get caught up in, in the emotion of the charitable time before Christmas. But it's a time of giving. There's a lot of generosity that flows during this time. Christmas is, maybe if you were to um, think about answering that question further, it's tiring. Maybe you get tired. There's so many different events. It's expensive. It, th- there's a cost to it. Um, maybe Christmas is painful. Maybe it's a painful time for you, or maybe this year is going to be painful. It's going to be a different kind of a Christmas, or maybe it's the first or it's the second Christmas that you have to celebrate without a certain family member or a friend or a loved one, and it's just not the same. I was talking to my mother this past week. It was her birthday, and and we were talking about Christmas, and she got emotional in thinking that that this is the first Christmas that she doesn't have her older sister who who died suddenly, unexpectedly this past past year. And and so she said, it just seems very strange because my, my sister was always there, and we'd always exchange conversations and cards and different things at Christmas time, and, and to know she is not here with us. And, and so some of you are experiencing that in your own life. For some, Christmas is exciting. It is wonderful. It is the most wonderful time of the year. And this beautiful snowfall, if you can avoid kind of the chaos of driving, it actually looks rather beautiful out there. And it's just like, this is amazing. This is so beautiful. And so Christmas is trees and lights, decorations. And then there's some of these, oh, you shouldn't have kind of decorations. You can tell this is a, you know, a guy decorating his bike as a Christmas tree. Or, um, you know, this is redneck Christmas uh, with a stepladder being decorated. I mean, it works, right? You know, like in some of you are like, hey, that, some of you men might even be, that's a good idea. That would, that would get rid of one box down in the basement that we have to haul up every year. We'll just go out to the shed and get the stepladder and decorate that next year. Great idea, you know. Or it's a time, too, of the awkward family photos, you know. And, and you see those uh, this time of year and, and you just think, you know, those ugly sweaters and, 
and uh, you know, people dressed up as, oh, just go back to that one. And Christmas tree, did you catch that? They're wearing kind of green garbage bags of some sort to look like a Christmas tree. Now we'll go on to the next one. And, and as you can see, that, that family with the kids there experiencing the joy of the season. And then again, just a wonderful sweater that the parents are excited about, the kids not so much. And, um, and, and so you have these kind of things. My, my brother who lives in the Calgary area sent me a picture of their youngest daughter. She has quite an attitude. Look at her with Santa. Uh, just, just thought this is just the most priceless look on her face and a Santa who's trying his best. And, and, and the good news is she did come around in, in the last picture when, when uh, Santa started to ask her some questions. You can see that even a uh, uh, snobby little um, character at times can be warmed up in this. And so we have all these different kind of, um, you know, what aspects to Christmas. And ultimately, I think in so many ways, Christmas is a distraction. It is a distraction oftentimes from the real meaning of Christmas. And so this morning we set aside all the other stuff that has to do with Christmas and we're going to look at what Christmas really is about. And in this series we're going to be looking at it this week from the perspective of Mary and Joseph. Here is our king. And so we're going to read in Matthew chapter 1 starting at verse 1. Buckle up your seatbelts, get ready for a ride as we take a look at this here. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amishadab, and Amishadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, not, Sol, not, not you know, the fish, but this is Salmon, and Salmon the, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Ab Abjah. Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoaniah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation. And after the deportation, Jehoaniah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, and Abud, the father of Elkiam, and Elkiam, the father of Azar, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elud, and Elud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, of or the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, are you still with me? Are you thinking, is he going to read through the whole book of Matthew like that? No, we're going to stop at this point. Now, 
I mean, some of that is like, whoa, you know, like that, that's some heavy duty names there. And if you just stay strong and confident, you can get through it, you know, just as I think we were able to kind of roll through that somewhat accurately. But when it comes to public speaking, when it comes to preaching or some kind of a talk that you're going to give, or even if you're an author, you're going to, you know, just in a basic writing class, you want to have a good introduction. You, you call it a hook. You want to hook, you know, your, your audience. And sometimes that's going to be through a good joke or a story or, or some kind of a question as we had one this morning to hopefully get your attention and get you kind of into the thought here this morning. And Matthew starts, the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy. I mean, when we go through the Bible, you know, reading plans, I mean, though, the, these are just things, it's just like, woohoo, I'm going to make quick progress today because you just do this quick skim job and you don't pay that much attention to it because, I mean, who pays attention to, you know, all of these names and that, you know, is it really important? But what did we say last week? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That's all scripture. So even this genealogy has some important teachings. It's profitable for us. Matthew 24, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We're not looking for a new, updated, revised version of the Bible where we delete some stuff and add some new stuff in. God's word tells us that, that Jesus was very happy with the word of God. My words will not pass away. Um, in Psalm 19, verse 7, it tells us the law of the Lord is perfect. So we have this perfect genealogy that is here for us for a certain reason and a purpose. And it's all about Christmas, believe it or not. This genealogy is all about the first Christmas and its importance and what it means for us today. This is about life-changing realities that are bound up in these verses. These first 17 verses have life-changing realities for where you are at even today. And this is the beauty of God's word. My greatest hope and, and one of the goals of Harvest Bible chapels around the world is that you would walk out Sunday after Sunday with a high view of scripture that you would see God's word as, as, as not only his word, but it is vital, it is important, it is valuable, it is relatable to our lives here today. And I trust that you will see this today. Yet we need to understand why is this genealogy so important? Why was it such a big deal back in Bible days? What does it mean for us today? Well, back in Bible days, they would actually memorize these kind of genealogies. They would know them. They would just be able to work through it. They would teach it to their children, and this was important. And you see, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all written from different authors, and they're all different snapshots of the life, the ministry of Jesus Christ. Different authors, different perspective, different audience that they're writing to, but one purpose, and that purpose is to reveal Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. And they're referred to as the four Gospels because the word gospel literally means good news. And so Matthew is specifically writing this good news. He's writing to a mainly Jewish audience to convince them, to show them that Jesus 
is, Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that the scriptures talked about. And he, that's why throughout his book, and, and the other gospels don't have it in the same light, there are oftentimes references, or it says that it may be fulfilled, or that the words of the prophet were fulfilled, just like we're going to see a little later on in this passage, that he's tying in Old Testament prophecies into the reality of who Christ is and what he has done. And so this is an important thing, is he's helping a Jewish audience to understand, eyes wide open, wow, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one we've been waiting for. And so we have this genealogy. And the first thing we see here in these first 17 verses is the humanity of our king. We see the humanity of Jesus. Now, I can't wake up one morning, you know, Monday morning, usually my day off, and I can't say, you know what? I want to be the king. I want to be king of the Commonwealth. I want to be queen, king of, Israel, or of, of England. I just can't jump on an airplane and just show up at Buckingham Palace and say, this is a takeover. I'd like to be king. That's just not going to work for me. They'll, you know, um, assign me to, to some hard labor somewhere in a jail, especially if I try to take it by force. It's just not going to happen. Royalty depends on heredity and, and on your heritage on this. And so Matthew shows here that Jesus had a right to David's throne. And back in, in, in Bible days, this said a lot. This was so vital. This was such an important thing for them to be able to see this. And this proves to us that Jesus was a part of history. You know, this is just so amazing about God's word and how God controls, of, controls all different, I mean, people and circumstances and events. And we see this here in the word of God. This genealogy shows us that Jesus that God is willing to identify with us. God is willing to identify with you and me. You might even want to write this down. Jesus came through all kinds of people for all kinds of people. Jesus came through all kinds of people for all kinds of people. And something else I encourage you to write down. God works through the mess. You know how every family, and let's face it, come on, let's be honest, every family has an interesting character in their family, right? You know, they, you know, they say in every family tree, there's what, a little sap? You know, there, there, there's always someone, you know, that crazy uncle, that insane aunt, or that cousin who is just outright strange. I mean, can any of you relate? You know, like, do you have that? Yeah, okay, some of you are being honest. I mean, if you're all to be honest, everyone, if you go back far enough, you're gonna find some aspects of your family tree of your heritage where it's like, oh boy, I'm embarrassed about that one. Oh boy, I don't want it to be associated with that person or what's happening happened and I had one of those crazy uncles he was a lot of fun he was he was my mom's brother and we always enjoyed when Uncle Al would come to town he was crazy he was a lot of fun he we would see him periodically when he'd come we'd go shopping he would buy us some some sweet gifts but he was just a lot of fun to hang around with he had this Toyota little four by four this was back in the 80s and I just nicely or no yeah I guess he just nicely got my driver's license and he says here you drive and I'm like what I get to drive this thing oh yeah and and we drove that thing and we had a lot of fun doing things that I had no idea could be done in a vehicle as far as, you know, I'd never driven a, a 4x4 before. And it was a blast to be able to spend time with him. And, and some other things that he would pull off, I won't share with you. It was, it, it was fun to be around him. But then also for a little while in my growing up years, he kind of disappeared from the family. 
Never heard anything. Couldn't get hold of them. Didn't know what was going on. Didn't have, you know, social media. Didn't have Facebook to try to track him or anything like that. He just kind of disappeared. And then one day reading through the newspaper, we were in Regina. He was in Winnipeg. But the Regina paper picked up this article from, from the Winnipeg paper. And here we found out that my uncle was spending time in jail. He had been smuggling some marijuana across the Canada-US border and got caught. And, and so um, he, he, he you know, was reformed from that and did his time, paid his dues, you know, and, and different things. And he came to visit us the next year for Christmas. It was kind of comical because I went to a store and I found this body vaporizer or this little, uh, little spray bottle, the little body spray, and it was the smell of fresh grass. And so I gave that to him and I said, now you can carry grass across the border and not worry about getting caught, you know. And he just laughed and you actually sprayed and it did smell like freshly cut grass. Anyways, it was kind of cool. I had a lot of fun with that. And, and you might think, uh, you know, Melden, that's just your family. And I, now we can understand where you're coming from a little bit. You know, our family is good. You know, we have none of that. And don't be so sure. Maybe you're the crazy person in your family that everyone else talks about. Ever thought of that it could actually go that way, perhaps? You know, and so, so you see this, um, you know, in our families, but when you look at this genealogy, you're like, oh boy. God came through all kinds of people, and what a mess of people this list represents. Take a look at that genealogy. You look at these names, and when you start looking at their story that is told in the Word of God, see how honest the Word of God is? It doesn't hide anything. That God uses, God works through the mess. He works through messed up people. Abraham, one of the first names on there we see, Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Father Abraham have. Well, they came eventually in, in, after he was dead, most of these many sons. He got a little impatient with the promises of God. And so he and Sarah, things weren't going the way that they thought. And so he had an illicit sexual relationship with his servant. What a mess. And yet the father of the Israelite nation. Look at in verse 3, there is Perez. Perez, do you know his story? Do you know the story of Perez? I mean, we don't teach this in Sunday school to kids. Harvest kids will probably breeze over this, you know, because of, do you know the story, Genesis 38, about Perez? Oh my, I mean, this is just absolutely kind of like, you've got to be kidding me. You know how, how, how there are some of these um, TV talk shows that were really popular, you know, maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago? Uh, I think they're still on today, but now people have kind of lost the shock value of it, you know, like it was Jerry Springer or Maury Povich or, um, you know, uh, Geraldo, and they would interview these people and they would have these just messed up dysfunctional families and, and you'd have all this drama and you'd have somebody punching out someone on the stage and, and, and you're doing all of this. Well, I can tell you that th the story of, of Perez and, and some of these other folks here in the Word of God would make those TV shows look like a Sunday school picnic as far as what was going on. The story of Perez here in, in Genesis 38, you can read this afterwards. Okay, so, so there's Judah and he has three sons. Two, his two oldest sons were so evil, God kills them. That's right, he does. You read it. They were so bad, the first, so bad, God was just like, uh, you're gone, you're dead. I mean, and so we have it. Then he has the third son. And, and, and anyways, what ends up happening, make a long story short, but you can read this. Judah has no, um, 
his wife ends up dying, and after he's done his ritualistic mourning, he goes and has sex with a prostitute. Turns out, it wasn't a prostitute, it was his deceased son's wife. So he's having a relationship with his, or has a one-night stand, thinking she was a prostitute, with his daughter-in-law. Like, how messed up is that? She gets pregnant. She has a son, Perez. As you keep looking through the list, you see all of this and you see Jesus came through all kinds of people. And this is the good news. This is the good news of the word of God. This is the good news of the gospel is that God works in and through the messy, chaotic dysfunction in our lives. Rahab is listed there, another prostitute turned believer in Christ or believer in God, in the God of Israel. She's listed in Hebrews 11 in the, in the Faith Hall of Fame. David, a man who did many great things for God, who was labeled as a man after God's own heart, was an adulterer and a murderer. And you kind of think, and, and I want you to understand here, folks, as, as I tell you these kind of things, this is not an endorsement or a celebration or a glorification of the sin and the wickedness of people's lives. No, that's, that's a terrible, sin is terrible and it's so destructive. But this is a celebration of God's grace, that God works through the mess. And he wasn't, he wasn't too good for us that he came from this kind of a genealogy. He came through a messy, dysfunctional past with family members, with descendants that were so way out there. And we see this, that God can work in and through this. He wasn't too good for us. Yes, he was perfect. Yes, holy, eternal. But he did not come through some perfect, self-righteous, look at me kind of people. He came through broken, hurting, struggling, dysfunctional people. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 17. Write that down. I encourage you to read that this week. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. You see, God is not pleased with the sins that we have participated in, either sins of omission or sins of commission. He's not pleased with the pain that has been experienced as a result of our sin or sin that has, been, that has affected our lives. He's, he's not pleased with that. He's brokenhearted about that. Sin is a big deal. And yet it's through the hurt and the brokenness he desires to accomplish his purposes, working through the deepest and the darkest parts of our lives. And this just speaks of the grace of God to work no matter how dark, no matter how ugly the past is. Here we see the humanity of our king. He's relatable. We can relate to him. He came in human form. Second of all, we see, as we continue looking at this passage, we see his divinity, the divinity of this king. In verse 18 and, and, and following, we'll, we'll read some more here. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here we see Jesus comes to earth. He's 100% human. He's 100% God. He's 100% divine. And this is a theological term, a reference um, called the hypostatic union. 100% human, 100% divine. And Jesus did not... I understand he did not give up his deity, his divinity, his godness in order to become a man. But he did take on the humanity that was not his before his birth. And why did Jesus do this? Why did this have to happen? Why did it take 100% man and 100% God? It's a mystery. Try to wrap your head around it. It's one of those mysteries that we cannot fully understand or fathom or comprehend. But we will one day. But then even then, it may not even be that important because we're going to be worshiping him face to face. Why is this important? You see, if Jesus wasn't 100% human, he could not stand in your place. He could not stand in my place at the cross. He needed to share the likeness with us in order to represent us. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in every way and it was without sin. He was the perfect, unblemished, spotless sacrifice for our sins. But if Jesus was not God, so we have him as 100% divine, and, and so he was the perfect representative for us, but if he was not God, his sacrifice on the cross would, not, would be insufficient in order to pay our infinite debt. This is the greatest miracle of all. This is greater than even the resurrection. Because you have to have this in order for the resurrection to, to hold its power, to hold its, it, it, its, its seriousness and, and, and the greatness of the resurrection. It comes back here to this incarnation, God becoming flesh. His hum, hum, humanity and his divinity declares Jesus to be that appropriate sacrifice. And we know that sin is serious. Sin is an infraction against a holy God a holy and a righteous God, and the only one that can satisfy the debt of our sin this is an infinitely valuable sacrifice, and that's who Jesus is. If God settled for something less to be justice, it wouldn't work. But Jesus was an appropriate sacrifice. That's who he is. His divinity reveals 100% man, 100% divine, but he was the appropriate sacrifice. And he is the only one that can effectively rescue us from the dominion of darkness, from the power of sin. But we have a choice. We have to accept this. We have to receive it. It's for all who call upon him. We can spend the rest of our lives here on this earth and then spend an eternity in hell trying to pay off the debt that you and I can never pay or we can put our faith and our trust in the one who stood in our place. We have that choice and it would seem that choice is pretty clear. It's Jesus. He is the appropriate sacrifice. 
Have you received this gift? Have you received Christ in this way? It's not just about making a decision to follow Christ. It's about a conversion over to follow him. Not just to receive him as, as, as your savior, but to live for him. Have you received this? This offer of salvation came at a great cost with Christ on the cross. You know, every once in a while, you'll watch one of these video footages of, of, of a miraculous rescue that takes place, you know, and, and, and perhaps it's one, take for example, you've probably have seen this before, you've seen it maybe in a movie, in a, in a true story kind of movie, or, or in, in a newscast where somebody is out floating, either in the ocean or on kind of a, a dinghy or a barge or, or a piece of an airplane or something, they're floating out there, and you know that there's no hope for them. There may be sharks, it just, they, they'll get either um, hyper or else they'll end up getting dehydrated that they're not going to live very long without a rescue. And so you end up seeing this helicopter coming and the, the search and rescue, they, they're there to be able to help them and they lower down one of those Jacob ladders as, as oftentimes they're called. They, they lower that down for the person to be able to grab onto. Have you ever, ever seen someone, they lower down the ladder, the rescue ladder, and they say, uh-uh, I don't want it. No, of course not. They're going to grab onto it. And yet you think of how many people hear this truth, maybe even here today, Christ offers you the rescue and you won't grab it. This is something we are to grab and this is something we want other people to be aware of and to reach out and allow Christ to rescue them from their sins. You can't impart it upon someone else. They've got to make that decision for themselves. Have you done that? Have you reached out for Christ? as your Lord and as your Savior. That's why he came. Ephesians 1 verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. A little later at the end of the message, we're going to spend time remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ through, the, through taking and breaking bread as a reminder of his broken body for us, the blood a symbol of the forgiveness of sins. As God's word says, without the shedding of blood, there cannot be no forgiveness of sins. And the blood of Christ covers all sins. And so we take and we remember that and we celebrate and we worship and we thank him and praise him. And so what is an appropriate response as we see his humanity and we see his divinity? What is an appropriate response to this good news? Obedience. And we see this here in this passage for in verse 24, it says, When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now just look at Joseph's response to this amazing news. He has this dream, this angel comes to him. And what's his response? Obedience. He does it. And we have to understand a little bit what's going on here. In verse 18, if you go back a little bit, it says, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothal was a custom in Jewish times, in a Jewish custom, very similar to our engagement, but, it was, it, but it's different. It's more, more powerful than that. You see, marriages would, 
mainly oftentimes be arranged by family, by parents. How many of us would have wanted our parents to arrange the person we would marry? That's a custom back then, not a custom today. Thank you, Lord. And, um, you know, but, but you see this as, as marriages would be arranged, and, and oftentimes the, the, the groom, the, the, the guy would be anywhere from 16 to 18 years old. The bride would be anywhere from 14, 15, some would even say 13 years old, and they would get legal married, but they would wait a year before they were allowed to live together or sleep together. And this is called betrothed, that they were betrothed to one another. And so one of the reasons why they did this, it was part of the, the celebration, it was part of the whole process, but one of the reasons was to make sure that the girl was pure, that the, the husband would know for certain that this woman that he was marrying had not been unfaithful to him. And so if she got pregnant during this time, that was a sign that something was going on that wasn't right. And this engagement that they were in was similar. It was a legal act that already had taken place. The only way to get out of it would be giving her a written form of divorce, a legal paper of divorce. And it was the only way you could get out of it. At the end of that year, of engagement, they would then have the family party, the celebration, the wedding feast, and they would live together, and he would be able to sleep with her. A little different than how we do it today, and yet during this time that they are engaged to one another, he gets this painful news from her that she's pregnant. And now she's making up some story that it's, she conceived through the Holy Spirit, an angel came to her, and she's going to have the long-awaited Messiah, Mary, my Mary. I mean, she's a godly woman and all, but, but now she turns up pregnant. Maybe she's not so godly, and is this really? And now this, this, this story, you know, like, cuckoo. You know, you start wondering, you know, like, she, you know what, maybe, maybe, you know what, she, she is. Maybe there's, you know, it's some, some kind of illness a little further back in the family tree there or something. This isn't quite right. But here we see the quality of a guy like Joseph. He's an honorable man, a gracious man. And instead of making a big scene out of it, he just decides to, to just privately, quietly divorce her. He could have pointed her out. He could have embarrassed her. He could have made this public. And the result that he could have imposed upon her was the death penalty, that she would have been taken out of the city and she would have been stoned to death because she had been unfaithful. But instead, he doesn't do that. He, he resolves to divorce her quietly. And yet we see the result of his obedience after the word of the Lord comes to him from the angel is to take Mary as his wife and to take Jesus as his stepson. And he becomes the stepfather to the greatest gift that this world has ever been given. Obedience to follow God's plan for our lives, it's not going to be easy. It's going to require faith in the word of God. Obedience requires faith in the word of God. You know what? Today we understand the virgin birth. It, it makes sense to us. It's a miracle. We come by faith to accept it. You know how hard it would have been for Mary and Joseph to, to accept this? Not as easy. Not as easy as it would be for us, and especially they're living it. They had to trust the message of the angel as the word of the Lord for them. I'm sure at times they were wondering, did did the angel really say, did he really say this? 
Maybe sometimes you think, well, you know, if, if an angel appeared to me, you know, like I know what God's word says, but sometimes, you know, I'm just not so sure. If an angel actually showed up and told me, no, we have the written word of God. We know what God's will, what God's plan is. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and we, we, we take it against scripture and if it aligns with scripture, we see this is something we need to pay attention to. But this whole thing about, did God really say that? I mean, this has been going on for years. It went back to the to the garden with Adam and Eve. When the, you know, did God really say, the serpent put that towards them? Did, did God really say you're not to eat from this? But obedience for Joseph and Mary Joseph, and, and obedience for you and for me will require faith in the word of God to trust it and obey it even at times when it doesn't make sense. Here's something else about obedience. Obedience is costly. Initially, it's costly, but eternally, it's rewarding. Think about how this news for Joseph and Mary ruined both of their reputations. By Joseph taking her, he's basically admitting to people around that he was the guilty party, that they had a relationship that was improper for an engaged couple to have, ruined reputations. I mean, no one else got an angel. No one else got a visitor, you know, coming to them. You know, Mary's family, Joseph's family, you know, her mom didn't get it. Joseph's dad didn't get, you know, any sort of, we have no understanding of that. And so they ruined relationships, ruined reputation. Mary's dream for her storybook wedding were over. Instead, it was in a cloud of shame and sadness. There would be no party for her. But when we think of this about obedience being initially costly but eternally rewarding, we, we need to look at the cross. How painful, how excruciating, but eternally rewarding it is for any who receive the work of Christ at the cross. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, he said, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Carrying a cross, denying yourself, that's not the abundant life. We live in such an arrogant, prideful, look at me, look at my accomplishments, tell me I'm good kind of thing, or tell me my kid is good. We live for that kind of thing. We just see a society that's so obsessed with this. And Jesus says, you want to be a follower of mine? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And last time I looked at it, carrying a cross is not easy. And not, not something that is joyful. You think, is this the abundant life? And, and I'm sorry, this kind of talk doesn't grow a big church. It doesn't. It doesn't tickle the ears that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow but I believe that the story of Joseph and Mary here, this story that Joseph and Mary are living is the Holy Spirit laying out the pattern for how we are to also follow him. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. Obedience involves sacrifice. It just does. Obedience involves sacrifice. And, and here are some things that, that this sacrifice might mean. I mean, across the board, there's going to be various sacrifices that we're called to give. One that comes to mind is tithing, giving sacrificially to the Lord's work. While I was, a little while ago, I was discussing with one of our kids about, about the, the tithe, about giving 10% and, 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 and even more of our income to the Lord's work and, and how 
as a society, as, as those around us would say, that's crazy to give that amount of money to, to the Lord's work in man's eyes, in, in accountant's eyes. That makes no sense to, to just give it away like that. I mean, you're getting nothing back in return. It just doesn't compute and, and it just makes no sense. And, and, and it, when, when I do the math, and I'm not very good at math, and, and that's probably at times a good thing, and so I rely on others like my wife and kids that are good at math, but, but just even in quickly running the numbers, if I took an account of the amount of money over the years that we've given to the Lord's work, if we wouldn't have given that to the Lord's work and say, put it towards our mortgage, our house would be, would be paid off and we'd have some seriously good investment money for some other properties or some other things. Over the years, this, this, this happens. I mean, we would have, I was thinking of some T words that come along. We, we would have a lot more money for toys, for me, a truck, you know, like a, a sweet truck, you know, or, or trips or treats, you know, like, like we just have more money for that kind of thing. And, and, and in so many ways, it doesn't seem to make sense that, that God's word makes it clear that we are to give sacrificially and, and we see a benchmark in the area of giving is, is the tithe, is this 10% and, and as being a starting point. And, and yet we see that, that over the years we haven't lacked. God has been good. He's been faithful. He's given to us faithfully and, and in lean times, including seasons for both Charlotte and I of unemployment, God is supplied. I think of, our, of an example of our sending church, Harvest Oakville. One of the things about all Harvest Bible chapels that, that we give 5% of our income goes to help plant other churches. It goes to Harvest Bible Fellowship, the bigger umbrella to help plant churches and to help with various endeavors. And so right from the start, we've been collecting 5% and sending it to the head office at Harvest Bible Fellowship. And so then they disperse it and, and, and use us to, to, to plant more churches and, and to, to do the work of God to train up um, church plant pastors and, and, and to provide for them in the startup periods of church plant. Well, Harvest Oakville began this and, and they said, God, we want to be faithful. We, we want to be obedient. They now give 20% of their income that comes in across the board. It goes to help church plant. That's, that, what, that's what ended up helping us to get planted here in Kelowna. Their generosity, their giving. That's why they have two uh, families from Quebec, two church planters in Quebec, and Lord willing, are going to help plant and start a church in, or a couple of churches in Quebec, Lord willing. And you see this generosity. And when it comes to their building, they, they could put it towards, they're overcrowded and they need to build a larger facility and they meet with the bank and the bank says, you give 20% of this, you would be able to have your current mortgage totally paid for by now and you would be able to do this like why do you do it and they say you can't outgive God this is what God's called us to do and to be and God faithfully provides and and you see that going on and so when we give sacrificially initially when it comes to any sort of when it comes to our service for God initially it's costly eternally rewarding and sometimes we're not going to see what those rewards will be just last night I read of a biography of of a guy a Canadian who who went to the Congo in 1912 he spent 17 years there dry lean difficult years came home discouraged and just thought there's no hope. Like this was just, just what a waste of time. These 17 years serving the Lord in the Congo. No, no noticeable fruit. No churches planted. Nothing. It just kind of seemed like a discouraging work. And he died nine years after he came back to, to North America. 84 years later, some missionaries go into this area to survey to see what's going on. And they find a network 
of these healthy, reproducing churches. With a, One of them had a building for a thousand people. They had church choirs and they said, hold the term choirs loosely. You know, this was the Congo. This was out, you know, just, just in, indigenous kind of music. You know, not good for our ears. Amazing for them. And pastors. And, and what this guy did, he faithfully taught these children French. And he taught them the word of God. And he, he, he cared for them. And he, he went from village to village but saw no fruit. 84 years later, you see the multiplication of what God does. Initially, these things, when we serve, when we give to God, when we show up at 7 a.m., it seems this, why do I do this, this setup? Why do I work with kids, wiping their noses, calling the parents if it's a real doozy in the diaper? You know, like, why do I go and I, you know, serve in this way when I could sit in nice comfy chairs and be ministered to? Why do I do it eternally? We don't know what the stakes will hold. We don't know what they all are, but God is faithful and he brings the increase increase in his time and in his way. And that's why we do what we do. Obedience, initially costly, eternally rewarding. When we choose to not be in fellowship with other believers, to be accountable, this is a principle that we see taught in scripture over and over again in the word of God. I've watched godly men and women stray away from God, away from their marriages because of this, because they don't have accountability. They don't have people speaking into their lives. But to do this, it's costly. It means prioritizing your life better. It's making these things a priority in our lives and sticking to it even when it's painful and awkward. That's why we have small groups here within the life of the church and I can honestly tell you, I've been a part of small groups at times that are like put a cigarette out in your eye kind of painful. Like it's hard work, you know, just the kind of, you know, like just, just the dynamics and, and, and it's just like, why am I leading this or why am I a part of this? And, and it seems to be going nowhere. But as you, you keep at it and you keep seeing what God is doing, little by little, you start to see the fruitfulness come. Again, maybe not initially, but eternally we have no idea. How about sharing our faith, starting a conversation? Initially, it's costly. You know, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be labeled as a Jesus freak. You know, I don't want to hand out any invites to anything. I just want to be able to come and enjoy and, you know, and, 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 and not do this kind of thing. But eternally can be rewarding. How about speaking the truth of the word of God to someone about a, a tough sin issue or, or a tough issue in, in their life, confronting areas of sin when it'd be easier just to console? How about speaking the truth of God's word, what we see in the area of abortion or homosexuality or gay marriage or even hell? It's easier to not say anything or it's easier just to say, well, we ought to love. Yes, we are to love, but we are to speak the truth in love, the truth of God's word. And yes, we will be at times misunderstood, mistreated, maligned, even persecuted. And that persecution may come sooner than we may think here in our land. But folks, when we get to heaven, if you are in Christ and you get to, you're in heaven, not for one millisecond will there ever be any regret for anything you did here for Christ in the name of Christ here on the face of this earth. The only regret that there will be is that you didn't do more. And that we weren't more faithful and we didn't keep our eyes on the prize. We got our eyes on, on other people or on distractions or on money or on power or fame or pride. And not our eyes on Jesus. We won't regret it for one. I don't know what's even smaller than a millisecond. I'm sure there's something more. 
So here at Harvest, we, we desire to take God's word seriously. And the last thing that we see here is delayed obedience is disobedience. Verse 24, it says, when, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Notice he didn't even give it a second thought. He didn't wait around for a day. He didn't put out a few more fleece, fleeces. He just, he did it. The angel said, take her as your wife. He did it. Even though he would lose out on so much in their reputations and, and their dream life that they had hoped for and, and, and had planned for, wasn't going to happen. He didn't for a second delay. He went right away. Joseph did not see the word of God as something for it to be considered, but instead he saw the word of God to be in order to be obeyed. And as I said, here at Harvest, we desire to take God's word seriously. We want to faithfully preach and teach the word of God. We have a high view of scripture and that's good. And so oftentimes we nod. We agree. We, we come here because we we want to hear the word of God proclaimed and, and as we nod and agree and even sometimes even say amen. It's so common to, to even hear at the end of a service, you say, hey, how'd you know I was going through that this week? How did you know that this was something I was facing? How, I didn't, you know, sometimes I'll say, oh, we have video cameras up in everyone's home. You know, we, we have, you know, little microphones. We record. We know everything that's going on. We're your big brother. You know, I, you know and they're like, really? And like, No. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit speaking to us and, 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 and in the areas where we have need, the areas where, where God is, is, is speaking to us about, he speaks to us in these ways. And so, so we hear the word of God proclaimed and, and, and we nod and we shake our heads and it pokes and it pricks our heart and, and then we say, yeah, but. We get out to the parking lot and say, yeah, but. If I follow, if I say yes, if I'm obedient, if I have to stop that, if I have to give it up, it could cost me money, it could cost me relationships, it could cost me my reputation, I could lose my job, I could lose my house. But saying yes to Jesus could affect any or all of this, my pursuit of a happy life. But folks, we need to do the next right thing and leave the consequences to the Lord. Do the next right thing and leave the consequences to the Lord. And over the long haul, I have never, ever heard anyone say that they have regretted the path of obedience. But many have regretted the path of disobedience. They've regretted doing the next wrong thing. Folks, this is our king who came in humanity, in his divinity. And an appropriate response to him is obedience. It's worship thanking him that he is our rescue. This is our king. And he has come to save us, to rescue us. And he calls us into a life of obedience. As we see in Mary and Joseph, they don't regret one second in eternity today for the decision they made to follow. I trust that we would follow their footsteps.